3: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On this episode of Most Notorious, California's sensational 1933 Lamson murder case.
4: He asked Lamson what he had been doing. Lamson said raking in the backyard. The sheriff went out in the backyard and they found a metal pipe buried in the leaves that Lamson was raking. To make a long story short, they tested the pipe and said that it tested for blood.
2: Welcome again to another episode of the Most Notorious podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad you could join me. Hope you are having a spectacular summer so far. Well, my guest today, I am pleased to say, is Tom Zaniello. He's a retired professor of literature and film studies and currently an organizer of film festivals in Washington, D.C., where he lives. And in London, where he did much of the research for his latest book, Saints and Sinners in Queen Victoria's Courts, Ten Scandalous Trials, which does sound like a great book for this show. (laughs) And he is the author of California's Lamson Murder Mystery, the Depression-era case that divided Santa Clara County. And of course, he is here today to talk about this with us. Thank you for coming on.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: So when did this case first show up on your radar, and how did your interest in it lead you to write a book about it?
4: I can be pretty precise about that, because when I went to Stanford University for graduate school, in the first year I was there, I took a poetry class with a very well-regarded poet and writer, Ivor Winters he was uh, very demanding and uh, getting close to retirement. So one had a feeling that he that he wanted to finish off some things. In any case, I discovered that he had written three poems about a murder case and trial that occurred in Palo Alto, which is the neighboring city to Stanford University in 1933, 34, and 35. Um, so this got my interest. Obviously, I read the poems, and then I began to look into the case and his role in it, and I was fascinated by it. So that was a long time ago, and it took me many years before I felt I was comfortable and able to do the research. Uh, he had passed away, but his wife was still alive, and the two of them, Ivor Winters and Janet Lewis, she was also a poet and novelist, had led the defense committee for this man, David Lamson, who worked for the Stanford University Press and was accused of murdering his wife in the bathtub, very Hitchcockian sounding plot. Ivor Winners and Janet Lewis didn't believe he had done it, and in fact were the leaders of his defense committee, because what soon happened was a double whammy. You had town versus gown, meaning the county of Santa Clara versus Stanford University. And then internal to Stanford University, you had medical faculty versus the liberal arts faculty. The liberal arts faculty believed that he was being framed. The medical faculty believed that he had done the murder and could prove it with their medical knowledge. So all of this stuff uh, just sounded too good to pass up, uh, and I began to research it and interview the surviving daughter of David Lamson and Janet Lewis, who was the other member of the Defense Committee leadership.
2: Wow! So maybe before we get into the thick of the case, you could share with us some of Santa Clara's history what was it like in the early 1930s?
4: Santa Clara County was one of the most productive fruit-growing valleys in California. Its nickname was the Valley of Heart's Delight. The nickname now is Silicon Valley. There are virtually only one or two orchards left in this enormous valley that runs from Stanford, approximately from Stanford southwards to San Jose. This was a fruit producing, agricultural business-centered area. Stanford was kind of an add-on to this. The founders of Stanford, Leland Stanford, a great uh, rich entrepreneur, had horse farms. But Stanford was really an educational spot in an otherwise agricultural business area. Santa Clara was also known for gambling, prostitution, and generally a corrupt police force, prosecutor's office, and in general, Stanford would have, as we say, looked down their nose at this neighbor as not being worthy of consideration. The feeling was mutual because Santa Clara looked at Stanford as a snooty, upper-class enclave of pampered, rich, mostly boys at that time, but there were girls who were undergraduates. So you had a number of tensions at work here. One I call the town gown, and the other I call the liberal arts faculty versus the medical faculty. The liberal arts faculty supported Lamson's innocence, did not believe he was guilty. The medical faculty thought he was guilty and actively testified to get him convicted of murder and to be executed.
2: So yeah, let's talk, if you don't mind, about David Lamson and Elaine Thorpe. What were their backgrounds? How did they meet? How did they come to marry?
4: David Lamson and his wife were undergraduates at Stanford. Uh, they met there and eventually married. They were both active in the various literary societies, poetry magazine, campus literary magazine. In other words, they were undergraduates, undergraduate writers. When Lamson graduated, he took a job at the Stanford University Press, kind of natural extension of his interest in literature and writing. They moved to a small house right at the edge of campus. Uh, Literally a five-minute walk from what is now the center of campus, the Student Union. Small house. They had a child almost right away. I'm talking now approximately 1932, 1933. And not to put too fine a point on it, one horrible day, Lamson was in his backyard raking leaves. Uh, His wife, as far as he knew, was inside the house. And he noticed people coming around the front door and he realized that these were real estate agents that were going to show a potential tenant for the Lamson house when they were were away on an extended summer vacation. So he waved to those people, went into the house in the back door to come out the front to greet them. And on his way to the front door, he turned and saw a bloody, horrible scene in his bathroom. His wife was lying half in, half out. There was blood everywhere. He screamed. He rushed over, tried to lift her out of the bathtub. It was very difficult. Everything was wet and hard to hold. And then he ran to the front door, told the people to contact the police because his wife has been murdered. And I emphasize the word murdered because this will come back to haunt him. The real estate people notified the police. The sheriff's office came. And as the sheriff bragged many times later on, I knew within 10 minutes that Lampson was the murderer. And the next three years followed upon that with a series of three trials. First one was conviction, jury twelve o for first-degree murder, and Lampson was sent to San Quentin to be executed.
2: So, just to clarify, this happened on Memorial Day, 1933. And let's talk, if you don't mind, about the physical evidence found at the alleged crime scene. I know that there was blood found on him, scratches on his face. These are a couple of the things that immediately Aroused the suspicion of officers.
4: I, I think the blood—the blood on his on, on him was probably uh, the, the the biggest factor. The bathroom was tiny. I visited it many years later. It was it was unchanged in size. The body was covered in blood, and there was blood everywhere. There was no quote weapon of any kind visible. The sheriff could not immediately figure out. What happened, but the blood on Lamson's body and the fact that he had used the word murdered was very suspicious for the sheriff. He asked Lamson what he had been doing. Lamson said raking in the backyard. The sheriff went out in the backyard and they found a metal pipe buried in the leaves that Lamson was raking. To make a long story short, they tested the pipe and said that it tested for blood. In fact, eventually it would be discovered that it tested for organic material, and since it was in a pile of leaves, that's not too surprising. Lamson was arrested, and they started to build the case as they investigated his life and found other things that they thought were suspicious, and also they could not, they could not figure out any other explanation except a blow to the head because that's where the most damage on the body was. They had autopsies, obviously, including one by a Stanford University medical professor who said the only way such an injury could happen would be uh, by a blunt blow directly to the head with a hard object of some kind. And this to the sheriff's mind and later to the prosecutors could only mean one thing, that Lamson had gone into the bathroom and hit his wife with the pipe. Later, details began to accumulate. They asked Lampson had he slept with his wife the night before because it seemed like there were two different bedclothes in the house. And he said, no, we slept apart because my wife complained of indigestion and I thought it would be better to give her a night's uninterrupted sleep. This soon turned into the fact that they were estranged, that they were fighting, arguing, and somehow in his anger, he hit her with the pipe.
2: He seemed to be quite distraught, according to people around him who saw his reaction firsthand after he had laid eyes on his deceased wife.
4: Yes. That, 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 well, then we begin to get into some of the diabolical uh, <laughs> uh, machinations of this case. Uh, Lamson was in an am- amateur uh, acting society, and the sheriff said he was acting. He was acting distraught. He wasn't really distraught because he was the murderer, but he had to pretend to be upset. And since he had plenty of acting experience, he could do it.
2: I also would like to ask you about the bloody pajamas, slippers, and footprints. What did police make of them?
4: Well, the police saw a, a, a bloody footprints outside the bathroom. And Lamson and the defense said, well, of course, he had gone in the bathroom. The bathroom was covered in blood. He stepped in the blood as soon as he left the bathroom. Bloody footprints would be everywhere. That proved nothing than nothing more to the defense than that he was walking around the house after walking in his wife's blood. More important in terms of blood was splatter stains on the side of the wall and the door opposite the bathtub. The defense took the position that. She had fallen out of the bathtub, struck her head on the sink, and bled to death while Lamson was outside. This would explain for the defense not only the blood, but the fact that as she sort of catapulted out of the bathtub and hit her head with a very hard blow, blood would splatter out and up from that impact. It also explained. What Lampson said is that he found her half in, half out of the bathtub. The amount of argument about the location of those blood stains occupied significant amounts of testimony in all three trials, with Lampson's experts explaining that these were splatters, perfectly consistent with a head hitting the sink. And the police testimony was that only a blunt object could cause so much splatter.
2: One of the issues was that the alleged crime scene was contaminated, right?
4: Yes. It, it literally, people from the sheriff's office were walking through the house. Lamson himself was walking through the house. There there, there was no attempt, and, and I realize that a, a lot has changed over the years. Uh, But even for the 1930s, there was no attempt to keep people from walking around, looking at things. And so there could be no definitive answer to the question, how did these bloody footsteps occur, other than what the defense said was a very simple explanation. Lamson went in, shoes were covered with blood, and he walked out.
2: So as this was unfolding, the press certainly had a field day with the story. It was front page news across the country, correct?
4: Yes. There were a couple of reasons for that. The death was very dramatic and unusual, unexpected, sensational. Um, It was pushed as a massive cover-up by Lamson and his friends so that it had uh, an element of is would it be possible for an otherwise pleasant person to have suddenly turned so homicidal so it had a lot of elements of a, of a of a mystery and a crime scene which was photographed and the photographs got into the papers so it created a lot of a lot of publicity once it got to the trial however the publicity increased even more Because of the testimony of the experts on both sides.
2: So, did Lampson hire decent attorneys to help defend him?
4: I would say he, he hired, he had a different lawyer for, he ended up with three trials. So, the first trial, which was the most important one because it resulted in a conviction, probably his lawyer was not the top of the line, he probably in the middle. But the drama of hiring the lawyer soon became front page news because one of the most prominent local lawyers, Louis O'Neill, was a close associate of the governor. He was also very much a part of the county power structure. The prosecutor's office, was uh, he was very close to them, and he announced that he would take on uh Lampson's defense at first secretly behind the scenes he said that he would take the case for $45,000 and in 1933 $45,000 was a lot of money it was completely out of reach of of Lampson and any of his friends or family therefore when he was told that they would not pay he then announced to the press i'm not taking the case So this became speculation. If such a good defense attorney is not willing to take the case, it must be because he doesn't think Lampson has a defense. So in a way, not taking the case became even worse than if he had never made any announcement at all.
2: Right. And I guess it's important to note that even though they interrogated him pretty intensely, he never caved. He never confessed anything. He stuck to the same story
4: well, as the, as they began to investigate, they found some what they considered damning pieces of evidence. Uh, Lamson had exchanged poems uh, with a an acquaintance, a friend, a woman. And the poems were not particularly great poems, but they were uh, Lamson was doing what many poets do. Uh, They exchanged poems and asked for each other's comments. But some of the poems were love poems. And no sheriff's office is going to accept what is routine in any poetry or literature class is that because you write a love poem does not mean you're in love with the person who reads it or even who it's about. But the sheriff's office argued that this was a triangle that Lamson had another woman, secretly, and wanted to get rid of his wife so he could go off with her. The other pieces of evidence mainly came from the medical school that were so damning. Uh, one, the main one there was that the only way the injury could have, been, could have happened was a blunt blow to the head. And that was very, very strongly emphasized in the trial. And they also testify there's no way she could have, she could have uh, received that injury just by hitting her head on the uh, bathroom sink.
2: When we return, more on the Lampson murder case.
3: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
2: Back again. So I did an episode on Edward Oscar Heinrich maybe a year or so ago about his life in in general in some of the cases he worked on. Would you mind reminding my listeners about him, uh, who he was, and and what role he played in this case?
4: Yeah, Heinrich was an independent criminologist and professor uh, whose nickname was the Sherlock Holmes of Berkeley. He maintained that he never failed to solve a case, even though he was not an official member of any police department or sheriff's office, but he would often be hired and almost always by the prosecution to get the evidence on the accused. In this instance, however, contrary to his usual tradition, he began to look into it and came up with the conclusion that Lamson could not have done, the deed that he was accused of. This caused a lot of consternation in the prosecutorial ranks, because in almost every case, he testified for the prosecution, not for the defense. So it was going to be a very powerful weapon on Lamson's side to have him testify. And he did, but they limited a lot of what he could offer And in fact, they tried to belittle his knowledge, which seemed incredible to the community at large, since until this case, prosecutors would praise him to no end.
2: What was his argument in the defense of David Lamson?
4: Well, he he argued that the patterns of blood splatter were consistent with Aline Lamson's head hitting the sink they did diagrams. I reproduced the uh, protractor analysis he did in terms of how the blood splattered and so forth. That was really his major contribution was that all the blood evidence was in Lamson's favor.
2: So one of the interesting parts of this relatively short trial, I think you wrote that it went like three weeks was that an excerpt from Oliver Twist was read to the jury?:
4: Yes, I knew you would bring it up because, quite frankly, uh, the, jury, the jury couldn't resist what the prosecutor did. To remind people who may or may not have read this book by uh, the novel "Oliver Twist" by Charles Dickens, uh, there's a particular nasty character by the name of Bill Sykes, who routinely treats his girlfriend Nancy uh, very badly. And at one point he believes Nancy has, these are these are very, very much street people, uh, criminal world of London, the under, underworld of London. So Bill Sykes believes that Nancy somehow has betrayed him and he grabs her. He has a pistol, but instead of shooting her, he beats her to death with a pistol. This passage in Dickens' novel, Is brilliantly done, scary, precise, and and disturbing. The prosecuting attorney, in his summation speech, took the piece of metal pipe in his hand. And as he read this passage, and I'll read you just one or two lines to it in a minute, and as he read this passage about Bill Sykes beating Nancy in the head, he began to bang the metal pipe on the front of the jury box. And this was incredibly startling, certainly would never be allowed in any courtroom today, but it was a startling and frightening moment that obviously convict- convinced some jurors, if they were doubting it in any way, that Lamson was guilty. I'll just read one or two lines. Uh, after Sykes hit her, Dickens writes, she staggered and fell nearly blinded with the blood that rained down from her deep gash in her forehead. And this, of course, is the same kind of wound that Aline Lamson had from the sink. But raising herself with difficulty on her knees, drew from her bosom a white handkerchief, and holding it up in her folded hands as high towards heaven as her feeble strength would allow, breathe one prayer for mercy to her maker. It, Dickens went on, the murderer staggered backward to the wall and shutting out the sight with his hand, seized the heavy club and struck her down. The Prosecutor said to the jury as he banged the jury box, I am not hitting with my full strength. If there's any doubt in your minds, take the pipe in your hands, and you'll get the idea. And they dutifully pass the pipe one to another. So the physicality and the rhetoric by one of the greatest writers of the 19th century helped convict Lamson.
2: Kind of ironic, right? (laughs) Considering David Lamson's position at Stanford.
4: Yes, uh, this this case is filled with terrible ironies. Um, Poems of Lamson's friends are used in evidence against him. The leader of his defense team writes poems about this case. Uh, The literature faculty universally, with one big exception, supported the defense committee for Lamson. The medical experts, as I mentioned, uniformly were convinced of his guilt. The one exception, by the way, was a member of the writing faculty. Edith Miraliz is her name. She, unlike many of her colleagues in the English department, was convinced of Lamson's guilt and went on to live in his house after it had been sold. So it's a strange bit of detail uh, associated with her as well.
2: Did David Lamson testify in in the first trial?
4: Oh yes, yes, he did, and uh, the questions that he was asked were pretty much accusatory from the prosecution. Why did you hit your wife? Why did you pull her out of the bathtub? Uh, were you gonna were you gonna dispose the body? And he I think, with some composure, refused to answer their questions in any other way except that he didn't do it. It was a recurring phrase that the prosecution used and it, it took a lot of their energy in their examination of witnesses including Lampson. The phrase is washed blood. Washed blood was a technical term in criminal investigations to refer any blood That has come into contact with water. It's an unusual phrase, washed blood. You can see how that could be relevant in certain cases. And the prosecution took the term to mean that Lamson had tried to wash up the blood in the bathroom. And that's why the blood was washed blood. All it means is that in a bathroom, a person who dies in the bathtub no matter how she dies whether through violence or accident her blood is going to mix with water but they used it as a as a as a phrase to imply that lamson was up to no good when he pulled his wife tried to pull her out his wife out of the bathtub mind you the defense said how did lamson think With people waiting at the doorway, he was going to get rid of this body somehow. It it just defies defies logic. But they said that he was going to try to figure out a way of disposing of the body. And when the real estate people showed up, he could no longer do that. So he just put on the acting performance of his life and pretended that he was distraught.
2: So... Jury deliberations. There was a bit of controversy.
4: Um, we don't really know everything that went on in the first jury, which was the absolute was the absolute twelve zero for conviction. Although one of the jurors said that she was, there were insinuations made uh, by the bailiffs, the people who handled the jurors. One of them whispered to uh, to her, the juror, that. David Lampson was a dope fiend and was out of his head, but they didn't bring that up in the testimony, Uh, but I wanted you to know that, she whispered to one of the jurors. Another juror tried to stage the falling of Eileen Lampson in the bathtub. That is to say they got a juror to pretend to be Eileen Lampson and have her fall in a certain direction and hit her head And they said it couldn't have happened that way. So there were things going on in the jury that may have seemed to be common sense to some of the jurors, but recreating a fall in a bathtub with a couple of chairs uh, and a table edge would not convince most people, but apparently it convinced some of the jurors.
2: So as you have already said, he was found guilty, sentenced to be executed, And he found himself on Murderer's Row at San Quentin. How did he handle that? What was life like for him there? Well,
4: it turned out that he was able, as he put it, he was able to survive by learning the stories and personalities of the other men on Death Row. And he had obviously an empathy for people in general but he was able to empathize with their terrible dilemmas he never mentioned whether he thought they were innocent or guilty he only treated them as fellow inmates ready to be executed and while the word popular is not the word we might use i think they they respected this unusual person on death row and he said he could survive was there for about a year. He also was a writer, and I hadn't discovered whether he literally was allowed to take notes or write any drafts, but eventually he went on to publish a very successful autobiography about death row, not just his own case, but the case of his his fellow inmates called We Who Are About to Die, echoing the ancient Roman, we who are about to die, salute you. During this year, Ivor Winters and Janet Lewis, who had not attended the first trial but knew about it, began to investigate and were asked by some uh, people who knew Lamson if he would lend his ability to analyze literature. Could he transfer that to analyzing this case? He studied the transcript, the trial, and there was no doubt in his mind that he was being railroaded. Winters already knew about the extensive corruption in the various uh, law enforcement agencies in the area. He and his wife, they were very concerned about the conditions in the Valley of the farm workers. Eventually, they would go on to become friendly with uh, some Japanese Americans who were placed in the concentration camps, the internment camps for the Japanese So they were were an unusual couple. They studied the case, and they began to organize a committee of defense. And what they had to do, of course, was to convince an appeals court that the evidence used was not sufficient for conviction, and that he should be granted a new trial, which is exactly what happened. It took two trials, uh, both of them with hung juries, with votes of nine to three for conviction It's not entirely clear. There's no way to know about all those deliberations. Uh, Some of the jurors who voted, some of the voters who were of the three who voted to not guilty, uh, did become friends with Lampson. So, to a certain extent, uh, people found out what was going on in the jury room. The the jurors who voted for conviction essentially believed the prosecution's evidence. The people who voted not guilty said that they felt there was no real case, that it was clearly an accident.
2: On what grounds did the Supreme Court overturn the conviction?
4: There were um, three or four irregularities. I mentioned one of them was uh, staging a demonstration in the court, in the jury room. Circumstantial evidence, meaning the fact that he was present on, uh, in the scene with blood on his clothing. Did not mean that he was the one who struck the blows there were there were two or three things that I think most of us uh, would raise an eyebrow that these seemed to be uh, seemed to be unlikely and i I think the so-called murder weapon was raised as well. it never tested for blood, although the prosecution argued that it had uh, they couldn't prove that it was tested for blood each one. Maybe by itself would not have been enough, but the court said, and I'm trying to remember the kind of wording. Uh, it may be that he was guilty, but the evidence presented uh, was not sufficient to prove it. it. It was it was a double-edged sword, but the main thing, of course, is that they real that they got a new trial, and they could control a little bit more what the prosecution was able to do as a result. Of the uh, state court's ruling. Uh, they couldn't quite get away with some of the shenanigans they got away with in the first trial. The essence of the struggle between prosecution and defense did not appreciably change in the next two trials, but I th- think the lawyers that the Lampson side got for the second and certainly for the third trial were of a significantly higher caliber than the very first trial.
2: They were able to fine-tune things, which really helped them in the second and third trials predict what the prosecution was going to do because a lot of it was the same stuff that they presented in the, the first trial.
4: Yes. Yes. The other thing is that by the time we get to the third trial, there has been so much national publicity and what what seemed to be patently a railroading of Lampson that I think the, the defense felt stronger and that they had a stronger case. Um, the main examples uh, I discuss in the book were East, what we call the East Coast intelligentsia and writers, one of the most famous crime novelists of his day, Dashiell Hammett, the author of The Maltese Falcon and The Thin Man. And almost everybody who knows crime fiction knows those books. But Alexander Wolcott, who's not a name that most people recognize, but he had one of the biggest radio program, opinion radio programs in the country. They started to agitate for Lamson's innocence. And this was very influential across the country.
2: And also, you write, by the third trial, the public had basically moved on. It wasn't as interesting at this point to newspapers.
4: Yeah, yes. It's uh, very important that there was a shift in public opinion. But, you know, uh, and I discussed this in the book as well, a lot of these cases were decided by professional jurors. The court would not do as we do send out random letters to a pool. But they would often get the same people to serve on juries and while you don't get a lot of money to be a jury, you get some and um, these what I would call professional jurors would tend to be uh, sympathetic to the prosecution, sympathetic to the sheriff's office uh, because they were giving them they were giving them a job in a sense. so the votes of twelve oh nine three and nine three I do not think quite reflect public opinion at this time. By the end, I think public opinion had swung over, and you have to remember, since it was a hung jury, second and third trials, the prosecution could have charged them still again. There could have been another trial, but they backed off. They decided they could not they they could not get a conviction, although they kept saying thirty. Out of 36 jurors voted for his conviction, they decided not to continue and released him.
2: And we will be back in a few short moments. Let Mysteries
5: at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens. Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
1: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws... I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holliday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.
2: And we have returned. So Lampson was pretty encouraged after the first hung jury in the second trial. And by the third trial, he was so confident that he expected a full acquittal.
4: Yes. Um, I think this happens, probably happens in the defense team. They get convinced, and, and the person they're defending gets convinced with them, that if they get one more shot this time, they really will convince the jury of the, of the truth of their case. And I think that happened because public opinion, famous people, were starting to rally behind, uh, Lampson. They had some meetings in public. Janet Ivor Winner spoke at these meetings. Uh, they they felt the tide had turned and that it was just a matter of time that they would get a jury to agree. I I don't think they would have ever gotten a jury to agree. I think, I think, uh, I'm agreed in innocence. I, I think the system in Santa Clara was sufficiently uh, corrupt, if not corrupt, incompetent, that they never would have gotten an absolutely fair trial. We must remember, and we haven't talked about this yet, that after Lampson was taken out of the San Jose jail, county jail, and sent to San Quentin, the most famous kidnapping case outside of Lindbergh occurred in San Jose. Two desperate guys kidnapped the very rich son of a very rich San Jose family, and took him off hoping to get a ransom, but ended up killing him and throwing him in the San Francisco Bay. These two guys were, as criminals, totally incompetent, were caught almost immediately and taken to the San Jose jail. The person kidnapped, Brickhart, was an extremely popular young man about town and it's generally believed that it was his friends and others uh, began to organize a lynch mob. And perhaps we can see in retrospect that when thousands of people mass at a building, it is extremely difficult for just a few officers to keep them out. They grabbed the two men and lynched them in the park in San Jose. Lamson believed that had he not, they occupied, one of them occupied, by the way, Lampson's cell in the San Jose jail. Lampson firmly believed and said that if his date for movement to San Quentin had not happened when it did, he would have been in a jail cell down the hallway from these two guys. And he was convinced the the crowd might easily have lynched him.
2: So what does Lamson do when he is finally free to move on with his life?
4: Once he gets out, he becomes uh, uh, a successful uh, writer. His autobiography, We Who Are About to Die, becomes a bestseller. He writes a novel about another case of circumstantial evidence uh, with the wonderful title Whirlpool. And he goes off to Hollywood and becomes a screenwriter. His story itself was made into a film under the title of his autobiography, We Who Are About to Die, in 1937, which, as you can see, is almost immediately after his release. Lampson didn't write the screenplay for his own story, uh, but he went on to write a number of other successful screenplays. So essentially, he became a professional writer in Hollywood. Uh, for a number of years, and then eventually went back to Palo Alto.
2: So looking at this case, uh, what, close to 90 years later? You've researched it thoroughly. You've interviewed people connected to people connected to the case. What are your views on, on what happened? Do you believe he killed his wife, or do you think she died an accidental death?
4: Well, I've been asked this question uh, a number of times. Um, There was almost never any doubt in my mind about guilt of the actual incident. Uh, I I believe firmly uh, that she fell and hit her head and bled to death. Standing in the bathroom, the actual unchanged bathroom, I want to say 50 years afterwards, placement of the tub and the sink uh, was totally convincing that this could have happened in terms of her fall. So I, I think that solidified for me the question that Mrs. Lampson died of a fall. A lot of the other pieces of the evidence also were conv- convincing there was no blood on the pipe and, and stuff like that. But But actually physically being in the bathroom and seeing the configuration of the the furniture of the bathroom brought home to me that this was clearly an accident. About other details, uh, one of which was there actually a romantic relationship between this woman and Lamson with whom he exchanged poems. I, I, never, I never could satisfactorily uh, dismiss it totally. I do know uh, from, uh, I'm not a poet myself, uh, but I'm a reader of poetry. I I know poets exchange poems all the time, and a lot of poems are intimate. A lot of poems discuss love. A lot of poems say you, I, and if you're not a reader of poetry, uh, you can easily be uh, convinced that the one poet is really addressing the other pro as a person, as a lover, or something like that. Now, such people. There are people who write poetry like that, that is to say, write poems to their loved ones. That's certainly true. Uh, but uh, I was never, con- never really convinced uh, that this was the case with Lamson, although I could see why other people who would not have experience with poetry and poets could believe that.
2: Interesting. So would you tell us about your most recent book, Saints and Sinners in Queen Victoria's Courts?
4: Well, obviously, I've always been fascinated by trials. (laughs) Um, I I began another book uh, when I was living in northern Kentucky, which is basically a suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I was teaching at Northern Kentucky University, a supper club, which had formerly been a gambling club. But uh, by the 1970s, it was no longer a gambling club, but just a Las Vegas type club in northern Kentucky. Burned to the ground, and 160 or 170 people died trying to get out. There seemed to be no doubt in my mind that the owners did not provide sufficient exits, had overstuffed the capacity limits. This is the kind of club that had five or six separate rooms. There could be a wedding in one room, there could be a professional Hollywood singer in another room. I mean, there could be a couple of two to three thousand people. In the supper club at any given night. I myself had never been in it. Fire broke out, people panicked, rushed for the exits, and of course got clogged. And as I said, 170 died. I began to talk to people, talk to people who uh, had been there that night. Uh, Remember, I have hundreds of students that I see all the time. Uh, It wouldn't take Long for the word to get around that Professor Zaniello has got a bee in his bonnet about the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. And I know my uncle was there that night, so I'll introduce him to my uncle. So I began talking to people, and I began to discover that the owner of the club was pretty much a close friend of the uh, equivalent of the attorney general of the area. Uh, The attorney general of the area investigated and decided there was no crime. There was no no reason to pursue a case. The community in general was in an uproar. Uh, so many people had died. Uh, there, had to be a, there had to be an answer. So I began to make this case a topic for my advanced writing classes and bring in speakers, bring in people who were at the club that night and so forth, uh, with the idea of the students trying to develop their own skills at figuring out this horrible event. For a lot of different reasons, uh, I went on to other projects, including the a, a, a project that was just published. I had studied in London and knew uh, the British court system, which is uh, fairly different from the American system in many ways. And I began to read into famous and not so famous court cases. And I discovered a whole group of cases, trials in the 19th century, that involved Catholic versus Protestant animosities. That is to say, the Anglican Protestant church of a community uh, objected to what the Catholic lord of the manor was doing in the community uh without going into a lot of details it turned out that there were a whole bunch of cases that could be explained by catholic versus protestant not just the subject matter of the trial itself so i started to make a list of cases and uh and researched them a few of them were a few of them were already well known because they were they were notorious and others were not i came up with a list of 10 and researched them and found a lot of similarities. They were all pretty much scandalous cases, even for our eyes in the 20th century and the 21st century, who were used to a lot of scandals in courts. These were pretty scandalous. And the the, the final thing that did it for me and why I wanted to pursue writing it is most people's image of Victorian England is that it was a prudish, proper very uptight society. And I soon found out from investigating these trials that it was anything but that. It was very seamy, suspicious, a lot of things going on that people did everything to avoid bringing out in public. And when they finally broke out into a court case, the, the results were usually scandalous.
2: What was the most scandalous story in your opinion?
4: Well, the most scandalous involved the most famous Catholic in England, uh, John Henry Newman, or Cardinal Newman, as he eventually began to know. He was a, a Protestant leader of the Anglican Church who converted to Roman Catholicism and angered the majority of British Protestants uh, for going over to the other sides. Catholicism was still, at this point, a minority religion in England. Newman wrote an article in which he accused an ex Catholic priest of rape and molestation of women and argued that this man needed to be brought to reckoning. Well, it turned out that while this on the surface would seem like a good idea uh, to bring a rapist, out for inspection, it turned out to backfire on Newman. He was accused of creating a case just to embarrass Protestants, to get revenge on an ex-Catholic priest, all kinds of things. Not only were the, the details of the case disturbing, but the animosity between Catholics and Protestants went up a lot of notches. Newman had a friend who busied herself with interviewing not only British uh, young women who had been attacked by this man, uh, but also Italian women because he was Italian and an immigrant to England. But before he came to England, he had also done a number of disturbing deeds. So we we, we had a, a lot of things boiling in this pot. Catholic versus Protestant, foreigners versus Brits, and so forth. And it had the most famous Catholic in the country who was sued for libel by this priest. And, by the way, was convicted of libel. That is to say, the jury believed the priest when he said he didn't do these things. The evidence in my mind was obvious that he had. But the jurors were all Protestant. No Catholics were allowed to serve on those years. And... The only redeeming part of the trial was that the judge, the sentencing judge, set the fine for the libel so low as to make it sound that he was not convinced that Newman should be convicted. This was a a notorious newspaper story, uh, pamphlets being sold in the streets about it and so forth.
2: So California's Lamson murder mystery it's available online in bookstores.
4: And, 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 of course, on some of the biggest distributors online that exist whose name we will not mention.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sure.
4: Unless, unless, of course, you want to sell books. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, which, of course, is an important part of this. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for your time.
4: Oh, oh, well, you, you, you're very welcome. I, I haven't... Uh, I talked a lot about the book when it was published. went to California, did some readings in Palo Alto and San Jose, um, got into some good arguments with people. Uh, some had read the book, some hadn't, especially the ones who hadn't read it, uh, who said, how can you really be sure he was innocent?
2: <coughs> right. Well, that's why you've got murder mystery in the title of the book.
4: Right, right. That was the publisher's idea, by the way. I said it wasn't a mystery uh, because I I knew the answer, and they said that doesn't matter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, thank you again. Okay. Again, I have been speaking to Tom Zaniello. He is the author of California's Lamson Murder Mystery, the Depression-era case that divided Santa Clara County. This is another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.